Section 24 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ron Altman The Bible Under Trial by James Orr the Bible, the Hope of the World, Part 4 Once the ideas I have mentioned had been introduced, and had taken possession of the world, they liberated other forces, and gave birth to new ideas, which have cooperated with them in advancing the progress of the race. But no one who goes to the bottom of what is distinctive of our modern civilization will deny that the ideas I have named are the basis on which our modern civilization rests, and will as little deny that, however self-evident some of them may now seem to us, it was Christianity which practically put the world in possession of them, and still sustains them in men's minds as living convictions. These ideas are now in large part, as I say, the common possession of mankind. They exist and operate far beyond the limits of the visible church. They have been taken up and contended for by men outside the church, unbelievers even, when the church itself had become unfaithful to them. But none the less are they of Christian parentage. They are the principles of the Bible, of the gospel. They lie at the basis of our modern assertion of equal rights, of rights of conscience, of justice to the individual in social and state arrangements, of the desire for brotherhood and peace, and amity among classes and nations. It is the Christian leaven that is fermenting, sometimes in turbid enough forms, in all this social seething we see going on around us. Christian ideas which are propelling the race on in its march of progress. Christian love which is sustaining the best and purest and most self-sacrificing efforts to raise the fallen, rescue the drunkard, and make the condition of the race happier and better. And if the Christian root of these ideas and efforts were withdrawn, it would soon be seen how many of them would come to be laughed at as baseless ideals and a very different range of ideas and motives would take their place. How, in their race for riches, lust for pleasure, and greed of power, men would be willing to trample the poor and helpless under their feet, if only they could by that means raise themselves a little higher. We thus see that even in a temporal respect, the Bible and its teachings are the grand civilizing agency of the world. The experience of the past proves it. Christian missions, 
with their benign effects in the spread of education, the checking of social evils and barbarities, the creation of trade and industry, the change in the status of women, the advance in the social and civilized life generally prove it. We are still far enough from the goal, God knows. But contrast ancient pagan with modern society, with all its faults, and mark how far we have already traveled. Contrast Christian nations with nations yet in the night of heathenism, even with such lands as India and China, and note the contrast in the life of today. Take the Christian nations themselves, and see how it is those that have drunk most deeply into the Spirit of Christ, who most revere His word, respect His day, and observe most purely His worship, that stand foremost in all the elements that constitute true progress, foremost in enlightenment, in wealth, in virtue, in social order and happiness. Take finally the godly and godless classes in the same society, and mark how the tone of our public life and the stability of our institutions are strengthened by the former and are daily put in jeopardy by the latter. Quote, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, unquote. Proverbs 8, verse 13. And in proportion as that fear spreads itself through a community, the community will be stable, progressive, prosperous. Given a Bible-reading, Bible-loving people, and it will not be long before such a people is found well-housed, well-clothed, industrious, and content, before the demons of drink and poverty disappear from its midst, before schools and colleges spring up to educate its children, before all the tokens of a genuine prosperity are visible within its borders. Part 5 Thus far I have been speaking of the temporal advantages accruing from the religion of the Bible. But the chief blessing of the possession of the Bible is not told till we speak of what the world owes to it in a religious respect, and in regard to its eternal hopes. The two things are connected, for the moral reforms wrought by Christianity can never be dissociated from its religious ideas. Nothing elevates the mind or raises the affections so much as right thoughts of God. In the light of his relation to God, man attains to the sense of his dignity and worth as a moral being, and feels that life has an end which makes it worth living. The chief gain of the Bible, therefore, is still untold when we speak only of its literary and moral and civilizing effects. It is not disclosed till we think of its message of the love of God, and that light of eternal hope which streams from it into a world which, 
despite all speculations of reason and brilliance of civilization, would be hopelessly dark as respects the future without it. It is the Bible which gives the knowledge of God. I need not do more than lift a corner of the veil which at this distance of time hides from us the condition of the ancient world in a religious respect. What a spectacle of ignorance of the true God and of the way of life it is which presents itself. In one place it is the sun, moon, and planets which are the objects of worship. Elsewhere, as in Egypt, temples are built to four-footed beasts and creeping things of the earth. Compare Romans 1, verse 23. In other places, as in India, the great natural objects, the sky, the dawn, the rain, the rivers, fire, etc., are the favorite deities. In Greece, men adore gods sculptured in forms of human beauty. In Rome, gods of all countries are swept together and worship is paid to them. Round the roots of these religions clung innumerable superstitions. The rites of many of them were licentious and revolting in the service of gods of lust and gods of wine. The most shameful orgies were enacted. Where, from the list of these heathen gods, or in the stories told of them, could men get one idea to elevate them, one impulse to raise them above themselves to nobler life? When Plato sketched an ideal republic, his first concern was to banish the myths of the gods out of it. Think of our own island at the time when the light of Christianity first broke upon it. Druid priests chant their mysterious songs, go through their mystic ceremonies in dim forest recesses, plunge the sacrificial knife into shrieking human victims. The tribes who supplant them bring over their wild Scandinavian traditions, sing the praises of Thor and Odin, revel in the prospect of a Valhalla, where they will drink blood from the skulls of their slain enemies. Look at the lands which lie even yet in the shadow of death of heathenism. See their lords many and their gods many, their cruel practices, their revolting superstitions. As every student of social progress knows, their false religions rest on these lands with the weight of an incubus, and there can be no real progress till this incubus is shaken off. It is the poet Milton who, in his great ode on the Nativity, has described the dire consternation in the ranks of the heathen deities at the announcement of the birth of Christ. Christ came, and as his religion spread, the vapors of a dense heathen superstition rolled away before it, 
and gave place to a purer faith and to a nobler worship. Corruption, as we know, early seized on Christianity also, and in the course of centuries attained huge proportions. But we know, too, how from time to time, as at the Reformation, through the force of that vitality within it, which is but another name for the abiding presence of God's Spirit in its midst, Christianity has risen up and thrown the worst of these corruptions off and come forth stronger and purer than before. It is the Bible which in every case has been the instrument of God's Spirit in these reformations. It is the same Bible which has been the agency in that long series of historical revivals by which the church has once and again been saved in days of stagnation and unbelief. Without the Bible, not one of these great changes would have been brought about. And how marvelous the results! To the gospel of Christ we owe it that we ourselves are not today worshipping stocks and stones, but are bowing in acknowledgment of the one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is above all and in all. It was Christianity that in the early centuries overthrew the reign of the gods and goddesses of Greece and Rome, and swept them so entirely from faith and history that no one now so much as dreams of the possibility of the revival of their worship. It was Christianity that, still retaining something of its youthful energy, laid hold of the rough barbarian peoples that overran Europe, and with the Bible's aid trained and molded them to some kind of civilization and moral life. It was Christianity that, in Scotland, lighted a light in the monasteries of Iona and other places that by and by spread its beams through every part of the country. Just as today it is Christianity that is teaching the idolaters to burn their idols, to cease their horrid practices, to worship the true God, and take upon them the obligations of decent and civilized existence. As it is with the knowledge of God, so it is with hope for the future. The ancient world was as much in the darkness about a future life as it was about the being and character of God, and what notions it had were perplexed, confused, and erroneous in the extreme. But Christ, as he came from God and went to God, has shed a new light into the depths of the unseen, and by his own resurrection has opened the gates of a new and assured hope to mankind. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. The lesson of all history is that apart from the Bible, 
and this hope which it contains, the world but gropes in darkness, and wanders into deeper and ever deeper uncertainty, from the skepticism in which ancient Rome and Greece ended, to the unconcealed agnosticism, and deeper than agnosticism, the pessimism, under the depressing influence of which our modern age groans. Take a single illustration. I took up lately a work of fiction, a book written, its lately deceased author tells us, quote, for the first time in my life wholly and solely to satisfy my own taste and my own conscience, unquote. And this is the kind of teaching it offers. The author is speaking in his own name. Blank pessimism, he says, is the one creed possible for all save fools. To hold any other is to curl yourself up selfishly in your own easy chair and say to your soul, O soul, eat and drink. O soul, make merry. Pessimism is sympathy. Optimism is selfishness. All honest art is therefore of necessity pessimistic. Unquote. The close of the book describes the suicide of the heroine, and its last words are quote, Her stainless soul ceased to exist forever. Unquote. In such an eclipse of hope, and there is more of that eclipse at this hour in human minds and hearts than one sometimes realizes, what can bring light to the world but the glorious message of life and immortality through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look once more at heathenism. Here is an extract from a letter recently received from a young missionary working in India. Quote, I have had to give up the idea, he says, of sending home impressions of heathenism. Much of it is literally indescribable, and a good deal of it too awful to describe. It does not enter into one's mind all at once that one's whole environment in a place like this is almost incredibly vile. Things have not so appealing an appearance on the surface, but here and there are breaks, and one gets a glimpse inside. Unquote. Then follows a counter picture of the changes seen in the boys at his institution. Quote, here is a very primitive Christianity, if you like, but for pluck frank good-nature, real affection, and honest, downright fidelity, according to their lights, as widely different from heathen boys as night from day." Unquote. It is this gospel which today is flooding with hope and courage myriads of hearts that would otherwise be in deepest despondency that in India, in China, in Africa, in the New Hebrides, 
in every land to which it comes in rising like a great rose of dawn a quote dayspring from on high unquote, fraught with hope and healing for the woes of men but in this great work of the recovery of mankind to god of the regeneration of the world how absolutely indispensable is the bible without it what could the missionary arm and tongue paralyzed accomplish with it even in the absence of the missionary what wondrous changes moral miracles even are sometimes effected like seeds wafted by the wind into the crevices of hard rock that grow and flourish and by and by split the rock the simple truths of the bible without a human tongue to expound and enforce them have often taken root and brought forth amazing fruit to god's sole glory it was through a copy of the new testament found floating in the waters of the bay of yeddo that the gospel re-entered japan and created the first band of disciples the nucleus of the future church when as yet no christian teacher was permitted to enter and the profession of christianity was prohibited on pain of death need i finally in this plea for the power of the bible go further than its blessed results to ourselves what do we not owe to the bible and to the gospel which it brings i have spoken already of civil blessings i look now only to the spiritual our innumerable churches our sabbath rest and privileges the religion whose power inspires so much earnest life and so much noble work the blessed effects of that religion in peace in strength in moral impulse in the minds that possess it the comfort it dispenses in trial and the joy and triumph it gives in death all this is the fruit of the message of the bible whatever blessings or hopes we can trace to our christian faith whatever light it imparts to our minds or cheer to our hearts whatever power there is in it to sustain holiness or conquer sin all this we owe to the fact that jesus came and lived and died and rose again and has given us of his spirit and that we have the bible in our hands to tell us that he did it and what he expects us to be and do as his disciples here i close these papers surveying the whole road we have traveled am i not entitled to claim that the rock of god's truth stands fast and that jesus his gospel and the book that sets forth both are still let men gainsay as they will the spiritual powers that hold in them the hope of the world's future 
Christ's reign is not ending. It will endure. In many ways, voluntary or involuntary, his supremacy is owned by the very persons who most loudly dispute his claims. In Browning's poem, Christmas Eve, we are introduced to a German professor who, after having in the usual way resolved the life of Jesus into myth, suddenly changes his tone completely. Quote, Admire we, the poet says, how, quote, when the critic had done his best, and the pearl of price at reason's test lay dust and ashes levigable on the professor's lecture table, when we looked for the inference and monition that our faith reduced to such condition, be swept forthwith to its natural dust-hole, he bids us, when we least expect it, take back our faith, if it be not just whole. Go home and venerate the myth I thus have experimented with. This man continue to adore him, rather than all who went before him, and all who ever followed after. Unquote. Thus, paradoxically, does even unbelief confirm the scripture statement that God has given Jesus, quote, the name which is above every name, unquote, Philippians 2, verse 9. Christ's own church with more consistency echoes the confession, but so long as Christ in his self-attesting power, commands the allegiance of believing hearts, the Bible, which contains the priceless treasure of God's word regarding him, will remain in undimmed honor. It will be read, prized, and studied by devout minds while the world lasts. End of section 24